Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply the word to our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. In his name we pray. Amen. A New Testament reading from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Continuing with verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. My friend Beckett is the last person who you might think would have any reason to become a Christian. Had drinks with him uh, just uh, two weeks ago in L.A. Um, we were in this place called the, uh, the Beverly Hills Hotel in the restaurant and bar off the back of the lobby off to the right as you, after you drop off your car. And uh, Beverly Hills is um, it's one of the nicer parts of L.A. Um, it's, not, it's not quite Homeby Hills. They're the really rich people who send food baskets to Beverly Hills, but it's, it's nice. And, uh, you know, we were hanging out, a friend of mine with, with Beckett, and it was really fascinating in, in this, this place because, um, you know, uh, Jimmy Fallon was seated right there, and, like, Lauren Michaels, Saturday Night Live, was right there, and it was not a big place. I mean, it was no bigger than this chancel, I don't think. So it was, it was definitely hanging out with the Hollywood crowd. And, uh, though the hamburger I had $40, um, that's before tip and all of that, but it was a, a Japanese Wagyu cow that had grazed its entire brief life on native Hawaiian grasses in Oahu while being massaged every week with olive oil until it voluntarily gave its life to be my hamburger. It was amazing how they live on the West Coast. But but my friend Beckett, he uh, he grew up a rich kid down in, in Houston. Dad owned a limousine. I, it was the kind of attorney that makes a lot of dollars. And I uh, grew up Catholic, became an atheist, moved for a while to Tokyo, and then eventually settled in L.A., uh, did some acting gigs, uh, ended up becoming a very successful Hollywood set designer, uh, very much immersed in sort of the LGBT world. He, he, he went through a series of five or six boyfriends a couple years each, um, would, would kind of prance about West Hollywood with his friends and all the fancy bistros and the best shops, had plenty of money, posh clubs, sitting in glitzy cocktail parties with A-list celebrities all around them. It's the kind of charmed life you read about in glossy magazines and you think, what would this guy ever, how would this guy ever find interest in God, in Jesus, in the Bible, 
You know, it's just there's some people where they just live a life where they would never need God. And and Jesus talks about people like my friend Beckett in 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 the gospel according to John. This is uh, going to be John chapter six, beginning in verse thirty seven, as Jesus talks about people like this friend of mine and uh, really eye opening. This is going to be the most Presbyterian sermon I have ever preached in my life. I promise uh, for those of you who are non-denom just it's going to be meaty, but uh, hopefully you'll have ears to hear because this is Jesus himself, bread of life, discourse, picking up right after where we had left off. We're now in verse 37. This is the gospel of Christ. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews, meaning the, the Jewish leaders, because they were all Jews, and John's gospel, Jews means the religious leaders, began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life, for I am the bread of life. What do we see here? one of the most intriguing, dense, seemingly contradictory passages in the New Testament, though it's only seemingly so. There is mystery here. But what we see, first of all, is this shocking comment about our ability to come to Jesus. Did you pick up on it? Jesus says there is one thing that is absolutely impossible. There is one thing that nobody can do. There is one thing you won't do for a billion dollars and a Lamborghini. There's just one thing that there's nothing. It's impossible, Jesus says in verse 44. No one, universal negative, no one can come to me. No one has the ability to become a Christian. It's a universal negative. No one can be converted. You think my friend Beckett is unable to become a Christian. Well, Jesus is in full agreement and he throws you in the same boat and he throws me in the same boat. You say, well, well wait a minute, I don't understand. Uh, you know, think, think, understand the difference between can and may. Uh, go back to elementary school and you're in, you know, Miss Petrosky's class and you raise your hand and you say, Mrs. Petrosky, Mrs. Petrosky, can I use the restroom? And she looks at you and what does she say? I sure hope so. Because you said can, and that talks about ability. So then you raise your hand again and say, no, no, Mrs. Petrosky, Mrs. Petrosky, may I use the restroom? And she smiles and she says no, because she's mean. 
But Jesus isn't saying we're not allowed to come to him. He commands us. He invites us. He promises eternal life if you come. He says it twice in this passage. We'll get to that at the end. But his words are shocking because here is an evangelist trying to start a new religious movement. And he's saying, there's one thing that you can't possibly do, and that's follow me. It's like a door-to-door salesman going and knocking on every single door, telling you that you can't afford the vacuums I'm selling. He's not going to do very well. The, the future of the church looks very poor at this point. After he says this, half his followers leave him. But what he's saying is that we don't have the moral ability to incline our hearts towards God. Uh, it's complete human inability, what, what theologians sometimes call total depravity. And it's, it's kind of a misleading label because it doesn't mean we're totally depraved in the sense of being utterly depraved, as bad as we could possibly be. There is common grace that God gives to everybody. He gives the rain and the sun on the believer and unbeliever, elect and non-elect alike. Uh, There is still the image of God in the most ardent opponent of Christianity. He's not talking about utter depravity, but, but what we're talking about in total depravity is the total incapacity to morally incline our hearts to seek God. The fall, when we broke fellowship with God in the beginning, when we were expelled from Eden, That has incapacitated us morally. Jesus says, no one can come to me. And it's consistent with what Scripture teaches everywhere else. Think of Genesis 6 where it says that God looked upon all that he had made. He looked upon the wickedness of humanity and he saw that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time, emphasizing it in triplicate. Every inclination, only evil all the time. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that the person without the Spirit of God cannot accept the things that come from God. 2 Corinthians 4, he says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. It's, it's an inability. You, you, know, you, can, you can browbeat. Say you've got an adult child who's just not interested in Jesus. They've walked away. They're not interested You can manipulate them, you can twist their arm, you can browbeat them, you can bribe them, you can offer them cash. It's not going to change their heart. Some of you know that. Only God can do that. We're incapacitated. Ephesians chapter 2, what Jenny read, Paul says, as for you, talking to the Christians, don't get self-righteous, he says, because you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. I didn't know I was doing that. No, you didn't, but you were. So was I, the spirit who's now at work in the disobedient. He says, all of us lived among them, gratifying the cravings of our sinful flesh, following its desires and its thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature, he says, objects of wrath listen to the language it's offensive it describes us as spiritually dead as followers of the evil one you know who that is and 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 we had no idea it says that we were by nature objects of god's wrath or displeasure by our fallen nature it's it's emphasizing our total human inability jesus says no one can come to me. There are illustrations I've talked about before that are, that are sometimes used uh, that, 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 that are weak because it's, they'll say, you know, the preacher will get up and say that it, conversion is like you are, you're a sick with a sickness unto death and you are lying incapacitated in your hospital room and Jesus has the antidote in a spoon and he's tipping it over onto your lips, but unless 
you open your lips, the medicine will not come in, and you will certainly die. Uh, but the problem is, it's not saying we were sick. It's saying we were dead. No one can come to me. Preacher says, oh, it's like you're drowning and you're going down for the count and your, your mouth is now underwater and then your hair's underwater and then your fingertips are all that's sticking out and you're taking in all this you know, salt water and fish and scuba gear into your lungs and you're definitely going to die. And Jesus throws you a life preserver and it comes right up to your fingertips. But unless you quench down, you will certainly die. But the problem is that the Bible paints a darker picture. Not that we're drowning, not that we're almost hopeless, but that we're stone cold dead at the bottom of the sea and no one can revive us and there's nothing that can be done. That is a picture of the human condition apart from the working of God. No one can come to me. We all have wills. But the glitch is this. We always choose what we want, what we desire, what our heart longs for, and our hearts are broken. They're fallen. They're far from God. And given the choice we do not have the spiritual ability to incline our hearts towards God. There is not one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. You say, well, I'll start up a seeker-sensitive service. No one will come. There is no one who seeks God. Romans 3, verse 11. Michael Horton says it this way. He says, we can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a police officer. We don't want to. Um, 1523, the Catholic humanist Desiderius Erasmus wrote a lovely book called The Freedom of the Will. The following year, Martin Luther, the Protestant Augustinian monk, responded with a book of his own the following year called The Bondage of the Will because he explained that while we have free will, while we have the ability, natural ability to make choices, we lack the moral ability to make godly choices because our hearts are in bondage to the world, to flesh, to the devil. And we cannot free ourselves. Only Christ can free us. Only God can free us so that we can freely choose then to follow me. We're simply that fallen. No one can come to me, Jesus says. And that's why, second point, conversion has to be 100% God's work. It can't be ours. It has to be Him. Jesus says, no one can come to me, a universal negative, unless <laughs> the Father who sent me draws Him. And I will raise Him up at the last day. The Father has to draw you to Jesus. The Greek language here. It's like the water, it's, it's, it's the language of drawing water from a well. It doesn't mean unless the Father who sent me woos you. You don't woo water out of a well you send a pail come here water no you the water's not going to come it has no ability you got to go down with your pail and get it and bring it to you drawing it to you it means then that faith christian conversion is a gift of god listen to that language again from ephesians 2 as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins so don't get all self-righteous christians but because of his great love for us god who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith, that is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. That's God resurrecting a corpse. 
That's God diving into the bottom of the sea, picking up your stone-cold dead corpse, bringing you up onto the beach, draining water from your mouth, and breathing into you supernatural life so that which is dead becomes alive to God again. It's through faith, believing Jesus, trusting Him to be who He says He is, to do what He says He's going to do, trusting Him to save you. But that faith itself is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. God gave you that faith. You see it elsewhere in the Bible. Acts 16, verse 14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was worshiper of God. That meant that she was a Gentile who was worshiping the God of Abraham, but had not yet converted to Judaism. And it says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. God who could take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. God who can take a block of ice inside and melt it. Acts 13, when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You think, I'm not sure what to do with that. Is there a way around that? There are ways around that. But because these are the words of God, the words he's given us, I don't dare try to explain that away. He's talking about his sovereignty in the midst of all of this. He is the one who appoints for eternal life and sees to it that they believe. Philippians 1, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ to believe on him. It is God who granted you even the faith by which you embrace the gospel. It means faith is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. Look at Acts 11, verse 18. It says, When the apostles heard the report, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. 2 Timothy 2, pastoral care passage. Those who oppose the young pastor Timothy says those who oppose him he must gently instruct in the hope that god will grant the repentance see it's it's foundational for a grace-based ministry for gospel-based ministry this is this is the theological underpinning for so much of how we shepherd people it's why we don't smack people down it's why we don't shame people publicly it's why we don't manipulate it's why we don't abuse it's why we don't have to control people it's why when somebody wants to walk away we let them walk away we don't kick them out to the curb on their way out the door because it is God who grants repentance. We point people to Jesus. We do it with gentleness, Lord willing. God forgive us where we haven't. Gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance because it's all a work of God. Jesus says it's an efficacious work as well, meaning it's, it's effective. It accomplishes the work God has set out for it. Jesus says in verse 37 of John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. He's that confident. He says in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. That means that Jesus is absolutely certain that of those the Father has given him, and he doesn't explain that, there's not even one that will fail to come to faith in Christ. There's not even one that's going to fall away. They may fall away 
for a season. They might, but, but not fully, not finally. He's always going to drag them back, maybe kicking and screaming, but they'll be thanking him along the way. He's that certain. Jesus uses the most absolute language here to describe his confidence in his saving power. There's no way in the Greek language that he could have made these statements more strong or more direct or more clear, even if it seems so unfathomable to us. See, when Jesus claims someone, he says, this one is mine, and no one else will get this one. She's mine. The devil, you can't have her. Sorry, other religion, you can't have her. Other philosophy, you can't have her. Dangerous life, you can't have her. You know, he, he's that absolute. That person's going to belong to me. And they may stray, I'm going to bring them back because they're mine. I'm going to give her her faith. I'm going to make her alive when she's dead. I'm going to convert her. I'm going to give her repentance as a gift. I'm going to give her faith as a gift because it's all of grace. Even our willingness to cooperate with the Holy Spirit is itself a movement of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do just that. Martin Luther said that man's will is like, is like standing between two, uh, 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 it's like a beast standing between two riders. And, and, and if God rides, then, then it's going to go where God wants. If the devil rides, it can go where the devil wants. But the beast doesn't get to pick who's going to ride him. That's a war between God and the devil. And if Jesus claims you, he's going to get you. And it leaves us with so much mystery here, folks. So much we don't understand. Jesus keeps talking about a select group of people chosen out of humanity that the Father has specifically given to him to save. Verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39, again, he says, all that the Father has given me. It's like in Matthew, uh, in Matthew's gospel where he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or in John 15, 16, when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit. It's like this. If you can picture all of us rushing for a cliff and God is behind us saying, don't walk off that cliff. Walk off that cliff, you're going to die. And we're all, we're giving them the finger. We're putting our fingers in our ears. We're, we're, we're ignoring them. We're telling them he's a liar. And we're all determined we're going to go off that uh, that cliff and and Jesus shows up and says, you know, if you come to me, I'll save you. And we're like, yeah, not interested. Thanks. We're going off our cliff, and and the gospel's offered and salvation is offered, and we don't have the ability to hear it because we're dead. We don't have the ability to receive it because we're blind. We don't have the ability to even cooperate with the wooings of the Holy Spirit. We're dead. We're going off the cliff. We're going to our destruction. It is absolutely certain, and there's nothing anybody can do except God then jumps in and says, you, 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 you. Scoops them up, brings them to himself, gives us faith, gives us repentance, gives us life, and then we say, thank you, Jesus, and we go and write books about free will. Um, it's a miracle. And it doesn't seem fair to us. And it's not really that it's unfair because God doesn't owe any of us grace. If he owed it to us, it would be merit and, and it'd be uh, ours by right, not by grace. But it does seem unequal. And that's the mystery 
that we don't understand. Why would God choose me? Why would God bring me to faith? I was the most unlikely convert. Why would he do that? Why would he place his love on me? Why did God choose Abraham and not choose Hammurabi? Why did God reveal himself to St. Paul in a way that he didn't reveal himself to Nicodemus? We're all sinners. None of us deserves the blessing. There's mystery here, but there's a hand of God that's always working and not explaining his ways or the secret purpose of his will. And so I don't claim to have answers, but I can say that many of Jesus' earliest followers had trouble with this specific teaching. You read in verse 65 and verse 66, Jesus went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It's this message, sola gratia, grace alone. Even our cooperation is a work of God's grace so that none of it is based on merit, so that we have nothing to take pride in except the gospel. It's a hard teaching. You know, why did the gospel come to me in 1990 in Dobie Room 235 uh, on the campus of the University of Virginia and not come to my roommate who had a church background, who was a far better person than I was, who you would have trusted way more than me. I was the angry one. I was the bitter one. I was the critical one. He was just an all-around good guy. And yet, why did I come to life when the gospel came and not him? Was it because I was more righteous than he was? No. Was it because I was more intelligent than he was? No. We were both UVA students. That puts us up there somewhere. I mean, in all honesty, not to brag. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I, but who gave me my intelligence? Who gave me my IQ? Not me. Was it because I was more willing to cooperate with the Holy Spirit? I was not willing to cooperate with the Holy Spirit until the Holy Spirit made me willing. The only reason that I'm left with is that God had mercy on me, not because of anything good inside of me, but because he gave mercy to me, a sinner. And so it leaves a mystery, unanswered questions. It leaves me wondering, why me? And the only answer I can find is one that St. Paul leaves elsewhere, which is that God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And there was somebody out there who needed shaming because they were proud and self-confident and God wanted to pull one on them to show, look at the kind of person I pick for my team. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of mercy. I choose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. I choose the weak things to shame the strong. I choose the things that are not to shame those that are because God is always the one who's going to flip the plate over, making the way up, down, it's, it's the mystery of the gospel of a God who chooses to give blessing. And so you think, okay, Greg, what am I supposed to do with this? Look at Jesus. That's what Jesus says himself. Look at his promise. It's a free offer of the gospel to everyone who will believe. He says in verse 40, My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and I will raise Him up at the last day. It's an objective promise of Christ to all of the world. Believe in Me and I will save you. You say, whoa, 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 Greg, 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 Greg. Greg, you just told us 
that it's all the sovereign purpose of God, predestination, even faith is a gift of God. It's all his picking and choosing. And now you're saying that he freely offers salvation to everyone. No. Jesus is saying that it's all predestination and the grace of God and his being sovereign and that salvation is freely offered to everyone. This is not coming from me. I'm required to believe, preach, and teach what the Bible says is true, not what makes sense to me. It's the mystery. He doesn't explain it, but you have the objective promise of Christ to forgive you of all of your sins, to clothe you in your shame, to engraft you into the Father's family, to have Jesus as your elder brother, that he might become your Lord and lead you and guide you through life. He says, I will not fail to carry you through on any of my promises to you. You will be alive, qualitatively alive. Verse 47, I tell you the truth, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's eternal life, qualitatively alive. He says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in spirit and you will find rest for your souls. God can change our hearts. He can teach us. We'll listen to him when he speaks. Verse 45, Jesus says, everyone who listens to the Father, that's the internal call of the Father into our hearts, everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Look at Jesus. Verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Bread is what makes you alive. Bread is what sustains you. Bread is what can give you the strength to face tomorrow. Bread is what can give you the, 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 the power to get out of bed on the worst day of your life because Jesus is that bread. Jesus is the man of life. Jesus is himself eternal life. Uh, you know, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. Look at Jesus. So I was having drinks. Beverly Hills Hotel, $40 hamburger, Jimmy Fallon watching, wanted my autograph. I said no, just kidding. But a friend and I were with, with my friend Beckett, Hollywood set designer, sitting in glitzy, fashionable cocktail parties with celebrities, the glitterati all around him, yet feeling empty. And a new acquaintance at a coffee shop invites him to go to church. He's with a friend of his. His friend eggs him on. Let's do it. Let's do it. Go talk to him. Let's go to church with him. And then, of course, the friend bails. It always works that way. He writes about his experience, having been dared to go to a worship service. He says, the service was just beginning, and I immediately cringed when I heard Christian music being played by their worship band. Ugh, I forgot about Christian music. Christian worship music was something I had seen satirized on television and something my friends and I regarded as just plain cheesy. An usher guided me to a seat near the front. I sat down amid hundreds of believers. I was a stranger in a strange land. I might as well have been on Mars because these Martians were earnestly singing in unison. Some even had their eyes closed and their hands raised in the air. Wow, this is serious. But after a few songs, I didn't mind the music so much. In fact, I thought it was quite good and even tasteful. After several more songs and a few announcements, the pastor came on stage. It was the guy with the Romans commentary book that I'd seen at a coffee shop the other day. He took the podium. He began to speak. It was September 20th 
of 2009. That particular day, I found myself in this church for the first time, sitting in this auditorium, listening intently as the pastor began his sermon from the Apostle Paul's letter to Romans. I, along with the rest of the congregation, was actually captivated as he preached every sentence that came out of his mouth resonated as truthful to me. It was strange. I had no idea why. My thoughts kept exclaiming, this is odd for an atheist. My thoughts kept explaining, exclaiming, yes, that's actually true. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's also true. My heart and my mind were agreeing with, with every word he was saying and continued to do so for the entire hour-long sermon. Y'all have it easy. At one point, I remember thinking, this is the gospel? What this guy is saying is turning everything I thought I knew about religion on its head. I was stunned by the utter simplicity of it. I began to realize I had never really understood the true gospel. While I was broken and a failure, God came to rescue me, he said. On the cross, God's son took my place and became a sacrifice for all my failures. In his resurrection, he triumphed over all my destruction. And now he stands as a victorious redeemer offering me and all who will simply receive him his forgiveness and vindication. Christ closed my shame and brokenness with his righteous and holy life. I heard the Christian message loud and clear on that day. I, in and of myself, had nothing to give or do. I only had to receive. This is good news. I was grasping this for the first time. It had me feeling that it was almost too good to be true. There's no way. This is the gospel? My heart was racing. That hour flew by and I didn't want it to end. After the sermon, the pastor closed his eyes and he prayed. Before walking off stage, he invited anyone who wanted prayer for anything to come up to the front of the stage from either side of the auditorium where there'd be people waiting to pray for them. As the worship band started playing, everyone in the congregation stood and they began singing again songs that were foreign to me. I had just been moved more than I had ever been moved before. I was still uncomfortable in this unfamiliar environment. I stood up along with everyone else to avoid drawing attention to myself. I considered going over to the side of the auditorium and asking for prayer, but, but doing so would mean admitting to myself that this all actually could be real. And I wasn't sure I was ready for the impact such admission might have on my life. For some reason, a thought came to me that, that Colin, the guy who had invited me to church, was probably watching every move I made. So I just stood there, frozen, simply too embarrassed to move. As the music continued, I felt like I kept feeling the pull to ask for prayer. I would take one step forward, but then immediately step back. It went on for several minutes. I, I must have looked ridiculous as I wrestled internally with myself. Finally, I just thought, you know what? I'm here. I might as well do this. So I walked down the aisle to the right side of the auditorium, went to the nearest person I could find on that prayer team, and I said, hi, I'm not a Christian, but I'm here, and I don't know what I believe. And he responded, all right, let me pray for you. He laid his hands on my shoulders, and he uttered a long and powerful prayer. I don't remember exactly what he prayed, but I remember thinking, why does this stranger care about me so much? There was such a sense of love in his words and tone that I was deeply moved by it. After he finished, I thanked him and made my way back to my seat. 
the congregation was still standing. They were still singing. And then they began lining up to take communion. I was reeling from all this stimuli, feeling unsteady on my feet. I sat down to let my mind process it all. And all of a sudden, a giant wave came crashing over me, a flood of intense warmth and emotion and power. It coursed through me. I didn't understand it at the time. I had no prior experience with this, no framework for it, no way of anticipating it. But it was the most penetrating moment I had ever experienced in my life. I was utterly overwhelmed. I started bawling uncontrollably. It was a kind of weeping that I had never experienced and an extremely deep and retching sob. I was doubled over from the magnitude of it all and then it happened. I don't know how to describe it other than to say that God revealed himself to me. In that moment, everything became clear. God was real. Jesus was real. The Bible was real. The resurrection was real. Heaven was real. Hell was real. It was all real. Everything that I had dismissed as a fairy tale was all true. I continued heaving for the next 20 minutes as God revealed His holiness to me and I saw the utter depth of my sin in light of His holiness. And yet I felt this mix of deep sorrow mixed with incredible joy. Sorrow over my sin, yet joy over having just met Jesus Christ. And I was grateful for everything that meant. Friends, that was 10 years ago, and he's been walking with God ever since. That's the power of God to save. It's, it's not always that dramatic. For one of these, there are a thousand boring testimonies of having always known that God loved me, and that's a great testimony too, because that too is the power of God to save. But friends, don't ever write anybody off, because the power of God is this, that Jesus has said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And when the Father who sent Jesus draws you to himself, there is nothing you can do to stop it because he's going to change your heart and you're going to have life. Friends, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your love to my friend Beckett. Give you thanks for your love to me and to all of these believers, all of us gathered here in your name to meet with you, Lord Jesus. You are truly here, present in the assembly of your children. You are here as an elder brother. You are here as a savior, as a rescuer, as a redeemer and friend. And we thank you, Jesus, because you are our best hope in life and in death, because you are our only hope, because you are the bread of life. And so, Lord Jesus, we consecrate to you now, to your sacramental use, this bread and this cup, that you would awaken us to the beauty of the gospel, weave us together as the family of God, and turn us outward in mission to this city and to this earth to bring the welcome of Jesus to those who most longingly need it. Because you are able. Work by your Spirit, Lord. Fulfill your purpose and save the nations, we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.